and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. It gives me great pleasure today to be recording from The Hague in the Netherlands and to be talking to a fantastic individual by the name of Paul Baer. He is a man who's a very deep thinker on strategy, finance and government relations. A man who spent more than 20 years with Shell, working through various different roles from finance, strategy and then into government relations. Paul has now set up a consultancy business where he advises large corporates, uh, multinationals, on how they should be structuring themselves to get the most out of the government relations function. It's a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation covering many topics, up to and including the role of government relations in renewable energy. Thoroughly enjoy the conversation, and uh, I hope you do too. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for joining us and spending the time today, Paul. It's uh, great for you to invite us to your, your wonderful hometown of The Hague, and in a lot of ways the, the heart of, uh, of Europe and the, the, the brains of uh, European politics. Now, your background and like, your, your current job, current position, current expertise is uh, in um, public relations, government relations. Uh, would you care to kind of explain what that means uh, for, yeah. for for the likes of us who mightn't be quite so familiar with it as you are? No, thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, government relations is just one of the functions in large corporates or any corporate for that matter. Yeah. Uh, to support the business, mm-hmm. uh, just like you have finance, HR, uh, IT, uh, supporting the business you have, uh, usually at least in larger energy companies where my uh, history uh, and my thinking was formed. Yeah, the, the group of corporate diplomats or commercial diplomats that support uh, the leadership, leadership and the business, just like those functions do, but it's a much, much smaller mm-hmm. uh, group of people. Uh, and what they really do is uh, two things, uh, which is put their eyes on the ground and listen to what the political climate is telling them about mm-hmm. potential changes in the regulatory environment that is relevant for the mm-hmm. business they support and bring that information in. And what most people uh, see more of or comment more about is the role that government relations staff play in influencing mm-hmm. governments on the back of the desires and strategies of business. And I would say that where they really add value is precisely on that intersection so that business is in a position knowing well what the political climate looks like, what is and isn't possible to pursue mm-hmm. from a business angle. Okay, okay. We're living in a world where governments are, particularly talking from a European and US uh, perspective, um, very much driven by news cycles and got very short attention spans. How do you see the role of, of government relations in keeping climate change on the agendas of, of governments, both here and in other parts of the world? Well, there, there is a few structures that help keep governments, wherever they are, uh, keep that objective of dealing with climate change in an effective way front of mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of, of course, the, the COP26 mm-hmm. uh, meeting that just happened in, in Glasgow and has been happening for many years as one of those uh, conventions where, you know, as a government leader, uh, you are confronted with actions and policy changes that other government leaders are proposing and pursuing. Uh, so that's one mechanism um, in this very complicated uh, mm. set of agendas 
which you know are, are very local. And in the end, the problem mm. is global, but For sure. the rulemaking capability and power is a very very local affair. So um, how do I see that? Um, frankly, I see it uh, as a uh, a process that's uh, been going on for a while and has been quite experimental in many ways. Of course, we're now facing a, a pretty existential crisis, yeah. um, but also a, a pretty unique opportunity. And we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk more about uh, what that looks like. But that's that's the uh, the back um, uh, drop that politicians also need to convince their populations that change is needed because it's going to be painful and costly. But you know, geopolitical events happen and can knock agendas off track. Yeah. You know, at the moment, of course, that you know Ukraine is a is a very clear and present game changer for, yeah. for, for climate. How do you see um, the you know, recent events uh, impacting on government yeah. policies? Let's go, go first back to the principle. Uh, as you say, polit- politicians, they uh, will promote uh, new policies when it's in their interest. That's how politics work. And I think there's a bit of a unique moment in time now where uh, for the first time, politics realize they need business to be able to achieve their policy objectives. For the first time, there is an overwhelming majority of voters in those places where you are allowed to vote um, that have indicated that they find this a very important topic uh, because it's the future of the of the planet. And so it's a, I wouldn't say it's a perfect storm, but a lot of things are coming together that I think give politicians the confidence that this is a shift in their position that they can make in favor of putting pretty challenging policies uh, in place. And, and one of the things that will help them, I'm convinced, is that they have had two years of experience in dealing with the COVID crisis. None of that was a plain sailing set of uh, uh, interventions by government anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. They were finding it out as they went along and changed policy from you know, one month to the next, you had a lockdown, and you didn't have a lockdown, etc. But I think there is a degree of confidence that uh, governments have gathered through that process mm-hmm. that makes them, I think, also realize that this crisis is also something that they just have to manage through and experiment from time to time, but also take head on. And there's a unique moment in time whilst governments themselves have created the financial conditions to allow them uh, to get money into the energy system, support the energy transition, and because of the the money they've been printing and the interest rates that have come down mm-hmm. were so low for quite a while. So I think people realize in all layers of society, also in government, that this is the only opportunity mm-hmm. they have to make some significant change. So why haven't they been doing it? <laughs> well, because they were not motivated enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you mm-hmm. when you think about the carbon price, for example. I remember when I was with Shell, because they had a certain interest in promoting gas over coal, I promoted a carbon price of $50 per tonne. The European emission trading scheme is a, is a matter of cap, cap and, and trade, um, which allowed the allowances were so high that the price stuck around $10 per tonne at that time. And if you don't incentivize people to to change the way they use and produce energy, uh, they're not going to do it, right? You need you and I need to feel it in our in our wallets, and companies do too. Um, now the price is over a hundred dollars per ton. Now uh, coal is being phased out quite quickly uh, throughout Europe, and we're only talking five years on. 
So the urgency wasn't there, uh, is my conviction. And, uh, and now, now, now it is. And if you were advising a multinational um, on how to influence governments, uh, what are the, like, the top three things that you would be saying? You know, what's, yeah. you, if you're starting, say, a team from scratch, yeah. so a company that is, is out trying to expand, trying to get into, um, into new markets, how would you be yeah. advising them to be setting up a team? Well, for, the first thing is you need to be very, very aware of how you can be an effective influencer of a politician of governments. Um, for that, you need to know what makes those uh, government leaders tick mm-hmm. and how they make their decisions. And so if you ask me what kind of advice would you give a company who wants to set up uh, a unit like this from scratch is to understand that that's how politics works. You need to co- continue to invest in those relationships even or preferably when you really don't need them yet. It's just like human beings, right? Mm-hmm. You can only ask a favor uh, usually uh, if you've put some credit in the bank uh, with your with your friends. The second thing I would say is when you're running a business, the industries I serve are usually large, asset-heavy industries with physical assets on the ground. Lots of engineers work on those businesses, mining, chemicals, oil and gas. And the people who are in power in those companies, the CEOs are usually 80% or 70% of them engineers that got an MBA and then rose up the ranks. And they get in touch and confronted with pol- politics a bit later in their career, not when they're engineers, um, but when they have P&L accountability, right? And uh, responsibility for the reputation of the company. Also with this particular stakeholder, my recommendation to companies uh, of that nature is to allow some of these uh, rising stars that might be your your future leader, a stint in this outfit or help create it if it, it doesn't exist. So you'll learn how the real world works, which is not just your P&L. It's the environment in which you operate. And the other thing I would add is for people that then start to become those commercial diplomats, uh, whether you get them from the business or, which many companies do, hire them from governments because they know how the government works and have the connections, most of the time, I recommend people in those roles to spend more time understanding not only how the business works, but how the business makes decisions. So return on investment. Uh, it's usually an area where government relations folks, diplomats, have less interest in. They like relationships, influence, the political climate. They are uh, great uh, communicators. They're networkers. But when it comes to engineering, finance, definition, very important. It's not usually an area they're very good in. So those people I would recommend spend some time with the economist who builds up the model that allows the board to make decisions. So a bit of a long answer, mm-hmm. but it really depends on, you know, where that particular company is, what, you know, needs attention. And uh, what are the major differences between when you're working in Europe or the US or um, South America or Africa? Fundamentally different, you know, uh, ways of governing. Well, so first of all, the uh, profession uh, of the public affairs uh, function originated in the United States. Uh, that, that concern about reputation, very closely associated with the brand value of the business. Of course, in Europe, they're in Brussels, but also in the capitals of of Europe. There is also quite a well-developed public affairs or government relations function. But that's not necessarily the case in 
in Africa or in the Middle East or maybe in, even in Asia, in Asia, in, in Japan, for example, this whole notion that there is a, not a silo, but a separate specialism to deal with the outside world is, it's very counterintuitive to a society where, um, you know, collective decision making is the name of the game to begin with. It's really in Western societies and the Americas and Anglo-Saxon economies that this, this function is really grown up. And so, um, it's, it's very different depending on where you are. How Shell acts or BP acts in Latin America is also very much driven by what the rules are in the country where the company is listed, right? Um, uh, anti-bribery and corruption, antitrust, privacy laws, uh, transparency. So reporting what money you spend on lobbying, for example. Those are all concepts that are very well developed except for transparency, frankly, in the United States and in Europe, but not so much in other places in the world. And obviously, those type of companies, like the, the DOL majors, um, have got, um, until relatively recent days, uh, mm. a very bad press in relation to, to how they're dealing with governments and the types of pressures they're putting on, the types of financial incentives they're being handed out uh, to try and influence in their, their, their own ways, like financing uh, climate change denial. Um, there's been a more recent shift from the various oil majors uh, towards embracing the, you know, the the green and climate change agenda. Do you see that as being sincere for, for us to, as, a, as a first question? It is, it is sincere mm-hmm. um, as long as you believe that there is an irreversible trend uh, towards um, renewables and, and dealing head-on with climate change because companies... Um, they want to survive. And, and, and the question you should ask to all these individual companies rather than to me, because it's their sincerity we're talking about, um, is whether they believe there is a future for them if they change their model and manage through the energy transition. Can they succeed in doing so? That's the, the key question to ask them. I think many of those companies think they can. Um, are they investing enough? Is it going fast enough? Well, depends on who you ask. Um, um, uh, and so many of these large oil majors have tried to reinvent themselves to the extent at least that they uh, earn their place back at uh, the table. And so, for example, in the United States, you have a lobbying organization that represents oil and gas only uh, and very much focused on maintaining the status quo. Some of the oil companies that are interested in uh, thriving through the energy transition, as many of them say, uh, leave uh, that uh, association because their interests are no longer represented by an industry association that just focuses on maintaining the, the carbon-driven economy. And so I think uh, some of them are forced uh, to make this shift. It's, it's probably the best way to, to put mm-hmm. it and are doing so because they, th- they realize it's a pretty existential crisis if they stick with their guns uh, and uh, what they've been doing for many years. Yeah, there's there's the argument that um, the best reason for the oil and gas majors to be in the energy and transition and the, the advantage they have is um, they've got the balance sheet and they've got um, a lot of expertise in building large infrastructure projects. Yeah. But above and beyond that, um, what else, what do they really bring to the table? It's a bit like asking um, Philip Morris to be, you know, 
how to give up how to give up smoking. Right, mm. because on the one hand, if you mm. think about their objective of you know with making a return for the for the shareholder, mm. uh, there's a lot of money still to be made from oil and gas. Mm. Oil and gas is going to be required for a very long time into the future. They have their assets, they have made their investments. Mm. They make those investments not for two or three years, they make them for 30 years. So you're right. There's, they're in a split to defend as much as they can the cash cow, that is oil and gas, and use those, in, those funds to finance that transition. The benefit that oil and gas companies have is that it's a systemic transition. It, it will take time. You know, you can't skip if you're used and addicted in many economies mm-hmm. to oil and gas. You can't skip that era. So they, they have, they use their balance sheet. Uh, they use their um, existing uh, positions. They also use their convening power. And I think the, the, the fortune of that large oil companies have now is that the urgency to make quick changes is so significant that their skill to do big projects is what governments now require. It's not enough to tinker around with a subsidy level being at 10% or 15% to get people to buy electric cars or do one or two wind farms. It's not enough. You need to move to hydrogen for industry. Uh, you need to change the way you uh, divvy up the land, which is not necessarily a, an energy a topic, but farming, right, is a, is a, is a big contributor. It needs to, needs to change. And the government, see, I see them take central control of those changes. And all of a sudden, uh, those large companies that know how to do large projects are, are therefore at the table because they have the expertise. But, for example, as you bring up um, the moving into the hydrogen economy is going to take an enormous amount of political will. At the moment, for a large industry, I can absolutely 100% see, see it happening, yeah. uh, but only if the powers that be get in Significant it. support. Very, very Financial support. support. Financial billions support, yeah. and billions. Yeah. How do you see you know, government relations um, assisting in that? Yeah. Um, good question. There's a number of new players that they need to show up with uh, towards the government. Um, because other companies, industry, steel industry, cement industry, and the energy industry suddenly need to build new value chains, supply chains that allow that to happen throughout those industries, which are different than energy uh, industries, right? They're consumers of energy. So suddenly there's a different set showing up. Um, Government relations uh, folk can identify the need and bring people uh, together and um, try to create an agenda for those new coalitions to be effective vis-a-vis government because they know the priorities uh, of government and how government works. I would also say that, you know, hydrogen is just another gas. It's a different gas, but you can use some of the existing infrastructure that energy companies are actually operating at the moment, uh, to uh, to distribute hydrogen. But there's also a re- that reason for energy companies to stay uh, involved in this uh, particular transition and be taken uh, seriously. But I would also add that if you're on the receiving end, you're a commercial diplomat, you see all this happening around you, um, it's a struggle. Because firstly, the political landscape is more fragmented than it used to be. Um, so there's more voices uh, to listen to. Secondly, the speed at which regulation needs to change is significantly higher now than it was only two or three years ago. So there's not only more diverse opinion from government that comes across their desk, 
but it's also louder. Uh, it's more amplified through social media as well. Um, and so I see government relations people uh, operating more on the back foot and in a reactive mode now than perhaps even uh, three or four years ago. Uh, where they were in a position to be proactive and to try and drive the regulatory framework. So it's, it's, it's a new world for many government relations people in this business. So a big part of the role is uh, smoothing out the background noise, trying to keep, keep people on focus, keep them on message, trying to keep them p- uh, focused on the big picture in the long term rather than them just reacting to whatever is, is happening in the moment. One of the topics, as you mentioned earlier on, was uh, was transparency, and uh, you you kind of indicated that this was this was a failing <laughs> of uh, of you know, current you know, governments in this this part of the world. Do so you care to expand on that? The thing is, the regulations that uh, affect uh, businesses, energy companies included, like anti-bribery, corruption, antitrust, privacy, and and transparency laws, uh, they're all needed, required to ensure that well, that all stakeholders, as government uh, creates policy, uh, are operating on a level playing field and get equal, not amounts of attention, but that the, the pros and cons of making policy decisions are properly balanced, right? You want to get politicians the right information to make those decisions. I think in that context, it's really important to recognize that uh, simply companies have the funds uh, and therefore the power to have more influence than perhaps would be good for that equilibrium. Um, and government has a responsibility to try and equalize uh, the amount of influence that the various parties can, can have. So I think it's very, very important that transparency laws uh, are as uh, precise and well-described uh, as possible so that what might have been okay in the past where companies exert influence and they will use a concept, what I would refer to as a plausible deniability, right? Uh, that I think governments and uh, politicians will, will try to get the regulations to change so that instead of plausible deniability, the burden of proof will be placed more on large companies to, to prove their innocence of having a perverse effect, if I can call it that. But and all these regulations play an important role um, in achieving that. And I think it's extremely relevant and uh, appropriate for other stakeholders who look at that lobbying process to be very skeptical and actually demand this uh, precision and this regulation to be beefed up. And my expectation is that, look, anti-bribery and corruption has been around for a while, antitrust also, of course, for a long time. But the European regulations around privacy, where the Commission, when you violate those regulations, can fine you 4% of your global revenue, that's a relatively recent change. And I expect that this particular set of rules around transparency um, is going to be more detailed um, in that direction, which will be beneficial for those companies that have nothing to hide and communicate based on uh, facts uh, and, and, and science as, as best as they can. Um, it will be in their interest to um, to see that regulation come through. It will take time. Um, I always say that, you know, in the way you conduct yourself vis-a-vis government, 
what you should expect is to be judged by the standards of tomorrow and not by the laws of of today so that you're you know you have an honest story that you can defend even if laws are are tightened over time and people start looking back um the analysis must be slightly different, though, when you're dealing with the uh, difference between like an oil major, um, a BPHL, um, or you're dealing with um, a uh, like a Saudi Ramco or you know, a, a, yeah. a, a company that is essentially a state. How does the analysis change with that? Well, it, it, it's a bit going back to where we where we talked about before. It really mm. depends um, what company your um, what, what's your home home country. Mm-hmm. Of course, Saudi Aramco needs to comply with regulation. Uh, when they operate in the U.S., which is de- designed by Congress uh, and, and not by Saudi, the Saudi states or the kingdom, right? But what you see is that uh, global companies adopt the, otherwise they can't run their business in any sensible way. They adopt uh, the standard uh, that they're used to in their home country as the global standard uh, and apply that everywhere. Uh, in as much as they they can, uh, and that that equation that that calculation is different for Saudi Aramco than it is for a BP, an Exxon, or or a Shell for that matter. Which kind of tells a little bit about how your journey to this point, from a kind of a finance function in Shell yeah. through strategy and up until advising you know multinational corporations on uh, government policy. I, li- I like that question because it's it's where what I personally went through, right? <laughs> My personal journey. I always say I think it was 10 years ago that I moved out of finance into mm-hmm. government relations. Mm-hmm. And what I did was the strategy, the planning, assurance, so the internal stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh this was an organization at the time of 150 people or so around the globe. Uh, a, a reverse pyramid with lots of seniority, gray hair and experience at the top and minimal support at the, at the bottom, not so many junior roles. Um, and I was asked to help them, because of my finance background, create a bit of structure, definition, measurement, the things that a finance guy likes <laughs> uh, to do yeah. in this world of, like I said before, language, influence, relationships, um, which was a, a journey of six years almost, where um, when I made the change... I say to many people, well, it felt after 17 years of doing finance roles like my wings were clipped. I could get involved in lots more than the finite role of a finance manager with certain boundaries that you are not supposed to cross. So it was an amazing move, um, uh, which which taught me an enormous amount, uh, not just about myself, but also about, you know, uh, how companies operate and what the... The, the real world uh, looks like. Uh, um, and then I moved, um, at the end of that journey, uh, uh, I got an offer to go back uh, into finance and, and, and be the group risk manager. So that's, again, at the back end of the decision-making when you do the analysis and the numbers rather than have influence over our strategy and, and the, the way we, we work. So after some introspection, as one does uh, at that moment in life, at least me, to start up my own own practice uh, and help companies build their uh, GR capability, and that's what I'm now doing. Fantastic! Yeah, yeah, very, very difficult decision to make. I'm sure, like uh, moving from an enormously you know secure I know, uh, environments I'm, with. I'm not the born entrepreneur. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty risk averse by nature. That's why I chose a big company like that. Yeah, yeah. But it was a big learning yeah, uh, journey. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I can promise you that. Um, yeah. How did you go about you know 
learning how to do that, you know, developing yeah. those new skills? Well, the, the key thing I did as I was sort of framing my value proposition was to approach people in this field, lobbyists, mm. um, people that do public affairs in other large companies, and I had defined what I thought the problem was that I was interested in helping people solve, how I was going to go about it. And the way I approached them was to ask them what they thought of the idea rather than pitching or selling or asking support. I just said, look, you know much more about this world than I do. Uh, this is my idea. What do you think? And it, the network that I had <clears throat> in Shell helped me open doors and talk to people who could give me that advice, uh, but also my other sort of groups where I'm active in society, so to speak, uh, opened doors for me. And everybody was very, very keen to help. And with every conversation, my value proposition got a bit sharper and a bit clearer uh, until it was, was ready to, um, yeah, to do my first uh, job as a consultant. Um, what I also had to develop was the the process and the technology and the, the way of um, identifying the problem, building the strategy to fix it, and then helping people implement that strategy so that the problems were actually fixed. But but yeah, I had to learn that by doing mm -hmm. uh, and developed a couple of tools and methods to uh, to make that a good process. And in relation to um, you know, client acquisition, I know uh, a friend of mine who uh, recently left Goldman Sachs uh, said, no one would ever refuse a call from me because I was gone from Goldman Sachs from the first day on the job. No one ever ever refused a call to me. Now, be doing this, yeah. I'm just calling as me. Yep. It's a lot more difficult. <laughs> how, how did you go through the you know, the client acquisition process? It is a lot more difficult, but it's mm -hmm. also a lot more rewarding because mm -hmm. they know when they want to speak to you, they want to speak to you. I was lucky enough to find my first consulting uh, activity uh, through a former colleague who knew how I worked and what I was able to, to bring. Uh, so you need some good fortune, uh, frankly, uh, to succeed. Uh, and it's always exciting. It still is whether or not the next job is going to, um, to, to appear. I can develop, uh, relationships that give me the ability to, 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 to help people because don't forget it's, it's, it's not, it's not like I'm now advising uh, on how to set up a financial system of which you have many companies that, that can do that. It, when I'm helping companies with their capability improvement, it's usually a very sensitive and confidential set of uh, topics that they need to allow me to take a look at, right? Influencing government, as you said before, mm -hmm. there's skepticism around big companies' influence. And so uh, it takes time. Uh, there's a number of strategies that I, that I use. Um, I speak uh, and, and teach um, in, in Brussels uh, every year. I'm writing my articles, I'm approaching people on um, LinkedIn uh, just to share information. It's all very soft selling. It's just building and expanding my network and mm -hmm. trying to build my reputation. And that's that's a matter of you know having having time yeah. and keep investing in that. Yeah, and hard graft. Yeah, yeah. And if you were advising somebody who was who thought you know who hears you speak and go, oh, God, that sounds that sounds fantastic. What a, what a great career! How interesting and varied that is. How would you advise them to be, like I'd say, an LBS MBA student who's listening to this and says, yeah. I, I, I fancy that. That's, you know, how would you, what would you say about yeah. the, how to get into it, how they should be trying to structure an interesting career in this field? So I need to distinguish what I do from what many people, consultants in this field do. Okay. 
because they're the, the lobbyists. So, so the, the firms that many companies hire when it comes to GR are the lobbyists. And so they have that Rolodex of contacts in government in Washington or in London or in Brussels or other places in the, in the world. And they are people that are being hired because they know the lay of the land in that capital, know the people operating in the capital, and they can be the voice of the company and advocating on behalf of the company. In Washington, D.C. alone, there's 11,500 registered lobbyists. Wow. And there's other people who were not registered at, as lobbyists, formally, who also influence government. So it's, it's, it's a big town, it's a big number. That's not what I do. So I don't go and lobby the Dutch government on behalf of foreign companies. There's other specialists in this field that uh, go out and rather than advocate and represent you, they're more people that gather intelligence to give you the lay of the land in a particular nation or capital where you want to do an acquisition, perhaps, and you want to know how that works, etc., or a new project. Uh, I also don't do that. So I don't do the handwork to influence government or tell you what governments think. What I do is help build that capability uh, in the center. And so, for example, my current client asked me to help build the capability to function in the first place. And part of that work involves uh, identifying the lobbyists in Washington, for example, that have the wherewithal and the credibility and the knowledge and the reputation to actually assist them in their agenda in that country. And that's a procurement process. Procurement people for big industry, they know how to buy valves and equipment and cranes and pipelines and maybe uh, some services like maintenance services or the services of the McKinsey's of this world and those strategy consultants, you know, that come back all the time mm. through a revolving door. They don't know how to buy lobbying support that, so I can help them uh, with that. So to go back to your question, there's not many people that do this. If people are interested in this field of, hmm, you're trying to basically optimize how companies operate or work with governments and you know, improve the relationship. Uh, I, I can almost say they should call me <laughs> and have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, McKinsey has a, an outfit that does what I do. Uh, there are there are a few others uh, out there, but it's it's not a it's not yeah. a big group. Yeah, but your role isn't so simply uh, recruitment. Like that's that's. Yeah, but when you said that, you know, I find lobbyists. Well, that's I'm sure that that's one string to the bow. But there's all, all the structures in the organization, the process all around it, the yeah. protocols, the the ways you need to. Um, track performance. Mm -hmm. that, that's where, where my finance, finance hat comes in. I mean, mm -hmm. government relations people, if there's one topic they find really challenging to make decisions on and constantly uh, have discussions about, it's the metrics of, of good government relations, of success in that particular field. It's, it's amazing. I get asked to talk about that quite regularly mm. uh, and to write about it even. You're just about to be asked about it again. Yeah. How on earth do you measure success um, in, in government relations? Well, they're, they're, what are your KPIs? It's a great question. And there's so many myths around it. Mm. Um, in many fields, people make it way too complicated. And, and the answer to something that's very complicated is to simplify it, uh, frankly, uh, to be really clear. But the way we did that... And the way I now advise companies how to deal with that challenge 
it's, a, it's, it's quite simple. It's to sit down with the business, mm-hmm. ask them, okay, what's your objective this year, the year thereafter, and the year thereafter? What is it you want to achieve? And which bits depend on government, on regulation, on influence with government, on support, on changes in the constitution even. So tell, you know, you have a really robust conversation about the support and the resistance you can expect from government given a particular business agenda. And you work through that and you can usually identify three to five key things where as an organization, you'd like to help that business through your relationships with government succeed in achieving their objectives. So then you have your government relations objectives defined. I say to people, once you've done that, you've already done 90% of the job because it's about aligning with the business. You're not there uh, for, for fun. You are there to support the business, achieve results. If, if you can give that a dollar number, what's that worth? That constitution changing in, the, in Mexico so that international oil companies can actually come in and participate and compete uh, with Pemex, for example. That's a pretty big change, right? If you can't put a number on it, do. Uh, but put put one of five buckets there. You know, is it five million and more than that, uh, up to 25, more than 25 to 100 or more than 100? But leave, don't be too precise. <laughs> if you can't, for whatever reason, find another measure for that particular objective. Is it the number of clauses in the Constitution, like there were four in Mexico? Can you change three? That's 75% uh, of your objective uh, achieved. Is it the number of times you're in a position to put the CEO of a company, your company, in front of the president of a country? Because it's a relationship that's really important to support your business. So if you think you need two and you only achieve one, that's not so good. If you achieve three, it's much better. You can add that up. Uh, if you want, um, and then you track that uh, per quarter or sometimes just six monthly, every uh, biannually is is enough uh, to do this. But it's not so much about the metric itself; it's much more about that conversation that you constantly need to have with the business, whether or not you are pushing for something, influencing an agenda with government to change that the com- the company and the the, the business still appreciates. Um, the renewable energy industry is um, really, in a, like certainly compared to, to the oil majors and yeah. you know, the, the large, large multinationals, um, it, in its infancy. Do you see like there being a large, significant opportunity for people like yourself to be advising the renewable energy industry at large? Yeah, I, I, so I don't compete with the lobbyists. Mm. So I'm, 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 it, it becomes interesting for me, and I can mm. add some value mm. when there's some some scale. Mm. Uh, and you you can say you can have conversations about, mm. for example, we talked about government relations people being on the defensive, reactive mode, and mm-hmm. information mm-hmm. overload. Well, there is there's technology out there that, that helps you identify um, a number of themes, and you get fed with what's happening in the political climate on the themes that you've chosen. So rather than you having to sift through all the papers and all that sort of stuff, it gets presented to you. There's software out there where you can, if let's say you're the country chair for a big corporation, you come into a new country where you're the representative on behalf of the corporation uh, and you want to identify 
the movers and the shakers in, 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 in business and in, in politics in this country. And there's people that can map that out for you very efficiently and effectively using social media and all kinds of feeds rather than you taking the, you know, the manual business card approach and meeting people at conferences. When it becomes a bit more systemic and you talk about these things or about the need for training, uh, or you talk about the need for a, a mechanism or a method to do the, the, the tracking of results, as we discussed earlier. That, that is interesting for me, simply because that's my background and my comfort zone, if I'm really honest. When you then think about renewables businesses, I would ask myself, you know, where would the scale come from that allows them to think systemically about government relations? Well, it can come from, obviously, acquisitions and consolidation in the industry, which I expect, well, some of that is facilitated by the oil majors because they buy renewable businesses to have a more complete offering, so to speak. Um, the renewables industry themselves could uh, have a bigger voice, create that skill, create that influence by getting together in uh, associations. But I, I think it's a very fragmented mm-hmm. industry and there's a reason for it because technology is still developing quite quite a lot and for one problem there is like 10 different technological responses so i I, the answer is really mm, it really depends because i personally see um the renewables industry transforming our energy systems the world is is moving to be developing enormous infrastructure projects um, in in all parts of the globe I would be very curious to know how you think that somebody like ourselves yeah. in United Renewables might be thinking about how we can get into, um, yeah. into, into other parts of the world. You know, so South America or Africa or places. Yeah. There's enormous, enormous needs for renewable energy infrastructure, yeah. for, for stable infrastructure where, where you can have reliable electricity and yeah. that isn't, isn't necessarily dependent upon grids. The first thing is that <clears throat> in the renewables industry, but mm-hmm. also in many others, if you're not present yet mm-hmm. in a particular country, Government relations and business developments are two sides of the same coin. Okay. Very often, especially if regulatory frameworks need adjustments and tweaks for you to actually enter, right? Then it becomes part and parcel of your business development agenda. Uh, that's one. So there is opportunity for people who understand how governments work in those countries to assist you, for example, if you're interested in Latin America and don't know how to access that. Um, and there's people that, that can help you with that. Do I have in my network people that I can recommend to you very practically? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> Any, anywhere mm-hmm. uh, in the world, because I call my old friends and I explain the problem without mentioning who this is that's looking for this. They'll have an idea. Um, so it is very possible to identify people on the ground in any country around the globe who have the network and the knowledge to assist you. I would also say that before you do business with any of those people, you need to sort of what I was referred to triangulate, do some of the normal due diligence about these people to make sure that you're operating and working with the, with the right person. But individual facilitators exist, but you need to be a bit, bit careful how you reward them. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Uh, so that you uh, do that in a, in a very compliant uh, manner. This notion of supporting industry that's still scaling up, I think to, you know, facilitate and help uh, those organizations with doing that 
GR bits systematically um, as they grow, uh, because then yeah, you 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 help an industry that is worth helping mm. uh, get more effective relationships with government. If you, if you ask business leaders how often they believe their interests are aligned with the interests of government, and you do some statistics around that, only seven percent of business leaders say they regularly feel they're in a position and able to uh, align with the interests of government uh, vis-a-vis their their own business, only 7%. And if you then ask those same people to give you a score on how well the process is they have in place to engage with that stakeholder, you've got many other stakeholders, your, your customers and your employees and all that sort of stuff. The one process that's least robust of all is the process companies use to engage with that particular with the government, with that stakeholder. CEOs are, I think, in the top five concerns. They've always mentioned for a long time geopolitical uncertainty and overregulation, which have a bearing on uh, how you deal with government and how well that process is and how often you align. It's very relevant if you worry about that to have that in in good shape, but it isn't. And, and so. I can imagine a thousand reasons why a company feels there's also opportunity to, mm-hmm. to really improve mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and even like in looking at what, what we at the United Working Office are doing, we're talking to governments and we're talking to governments about, try, about trying to put projects together. And I do think that maybe there is a larger opportunity than, than you're, you're suggesting in the renewable space because we really need to be talking to governments. We're in a position where um, regulations do need to be written. You know, planning laws need to be yeah. revised. You know, yeah. grid infrastructures needs investment from the governments around. It's not a uh, like a business as usual situation that we're in. Um, yeah. It's it's something that does require an awful lot of political support. Yeah. You do need the political support, yeah. and to do that, you need to be talking to the people. Why? Why yeah. is there not more of an opportunity? Why aren't you saying yes? Renewables is the place we need to be. <laughs> well, I. I, I, I I'm, I'm saying that because it's not my expertise to do the talking to the government. But if we need to be putting systems in place, why yeah. aren't you saying, well, Chris, you need to be putting together, like yeah. you, you're not renewables, need to be putting, putting together systems in place. You know, I, no, fair I, enough. I, I do this, you know, I, I can help well, you. Well, we, we, we had a really nice conversation about that last night. We did. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Where you were putting a case in mm-hmm. front of me and um, I asked you a couple of questions around the strategy yeah. and the stakeholders and who influences who and the order in which you need certain things to happen mm-hmm. in the regulatory environment to make that business opportunity a reality. Yeah. And so, absolutely, and I, if I didn't offer it last night, I'll offer it now, I, I would be very happy to do a brainstorm with, with you and your team if you're interested because it's an outside perspective, you know, who at least conceptually... Uh, knows a little bit about wh- what you might want to think about. That that kind of role is the role that many of these lobbyists actually assume before they, on your behalf, influence government or gather multiple renewable companies to have you know a bigger voice, uh, or only do the analysis and give it back to you for you to then start influencing or gathering people around. So there are people out there uh, that can definitely mm-hmm. help you with this mm-hmm. in a more practical sense. It's interesting that you say it because I'm now working for a client that has not had a government relations outfit to speak of at all. They employ 100,000 people. This role was always part and parcel of, of leadership, of the business leader. They thought this was part of their role. It was not that uh, tradition like in the US or in Europe to have that as a 
separate function in this company. They're now setting it up. <clears throat> so to be asking uh, the question, should I develop my competence and skills as a company, but also as a renewables industry, is a very relevant question to ask. And if the answer is yes, and there's investment, uh, you know, you can justify, which I think you probably can, investing in this, uh, you're ahead uh, of some very large companies that still uh, mm -hmm. haven't recognized the value of, of this particular function. Um, well, Paul, thank you. That was um, very insightful, um, really, really fascinating conversation, uh, illuminating in a lot of areas I had very little idea about. I've <laughs> learned, learned, learned an awful lot from it, and I hope our, um, our, our listeners and viewers uh, learn, learn similarly. Uh, it's very kind of you to say that you're, you're open to people reaching out to, to asking questions. And again, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Massively appreciate it. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.